This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Love that song. You know why? Because it means it's a big week in the judge household. Yeah, our daughter graduated from middle school, which, of course, we used to call junior high. And she's on her way to high school, but not before. She got a certificate at an assembly last week in front of a standing room only audience and one that featured speakers and a chorus. It was great. But now a couple things here. Well, I said, yeah, that's great. We, we never got certificates of diplomas until we graduated from high school, right, guys? And two, we didn't even have a separate assembly. I think there was an assembly with the rest of the school. I think where like, certain students were recognized for their achievement. Anyway, Brian, I think that means uh, we're officially grumpy old men. That's what it means. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you where I assembled when I was done with uh, uh, junior high school. I assembled at the meat plant where my father got me a job carrying sides of beef around for the summer. That was my <laughs> assembly. <laughs> Congratulations. Here's a side of uh, pork loin. Um, hey, sometimes, Rick, I, I think we, you know, I can't remember those things because, well, because I can't remember, period, which is another way of saying, yeah, we're officially grumpy old men. Hey, speak for yourself. I like the fact we're all still young enough to attend assemblies, any kind of assemblies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the fact that we can assemble. Yeah. <laughs> well, there are no certificates or assemblies or singing groups here, but we do have an interesting array of guests for you today. We've got former Pro Football Hall of Fame Executive Director Joe Horgan, who last week won, what else? The Horgan Award. Yeah, he's here. So it was the most traveled quarterback in NFL history. That would be Josh McCown. And Hall of Fame voter John McClain from Houston is back to tell us what's going on or not going on with a Texans search for a new GM. And Goose, I don't know that I can ever remember two GMs getting canned within five weeks after the NFL draft. I mean, Mike McCagnan got cashiered by the Jets, I think, five days after the draft. What the heck's going on? Well, I think there's a division. The division of power is fine for the federal government, but not for an NFL building. You know, football has become a game of power. Everyone wants more of it. When a GM is fired, generally the head coach has won a power struggle, and I believe that's the case here. Both Bill O'Brien and Adam Gase now have the loudest voices in their respective buildings. Yeah, well, speaking of the Jets, Todd McShay of ESPN, he says he may be considered for a front office job with the Jets. How come they're not calling Dr. Data, Ron? Because of the Jets, which is another way of saying they aren't smart enough to call it Goose Man. <laughs> there you go. Bill Belichick well, did, and what did he end up with? Don't, Julian don't, Edelman. <laughs> don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. But we will tell you that we're going to commercial, and we're going right now. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Before we get started here, a uh, quick shout-out to the L.A. Times' Sam Farmer, who last week was named winner of the McCann Award, and that's given annually to the writer who has made a long and distinguished contribution to football through his or her coverage. Now, Sammy and I worked together for six years at the San Jose Mercury News in the 1990s. 90s, he covered the Raiders, I covered the 49ers, and I'm very, very happy for him and proud to say I worked on the same staff as he did. And Sam joins an elite company of writers whose name appear on the wall of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. If you go there, you'll see it on the wall. And on that list, you'll find our own Rick Oslin, 2004. Clark, it's an honor to be on that wall, except you need a magnifying glass to read our <laughs> names in that wall. 
any difference. They're there. You're in the hall. Congratulations. Anyway, Sammy, nice job, and look forward to seeing you in Canton in early August. On another front, uh, this one farther east, we'd also like to offer our congratulations to the Falcons' Roddy White on getting named to the team's Ring of Honor. He becomes the ninth former Falcon to join the ring, and the first since work done in 2017. And I know what you're thinking, because I was thinking it too. Uh, Roddy White? Well, look no farther than this, people. From 2008 through 2009, he averaged, averaged, 96 catches a season and led the league with 115 in 2010. Not bad, Gooseman. Yeah, he was a former first-round draft pick, and in actuality, he was Julio Jones for the Falcons before Julio Jones. You know, he strung together six consecutive thousand-yard seasons, went to four Pro Bowls, had back-to-back 100-catch seasons. But then Jones arrives in 2011. Inside of three years, he's Matt Ryan's lead receiver. White's in his 30s by then. His best years are behind him. No rings. And if there's no rings, there's no footprint in history. Yeah, no kidding. And Ron, I know he's in a different conference on the team you cover, but you have any memories of Roddy White? Uh, <laughs> so this is going to say a lot about Roddy White and, and uh, receivers of this era. But my one uh, memory of Roddy White is the day he wore a T-shirt that said, Free Mike Vick. The day that Vick got sentenced to 23 months in jail. Ouch. He scored a touchdown, pulled up his shirt, and it cost him 10000 bucks. one of the most expensive touchdowns he ever scored, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> he was wearing a T-shirt that said, Free White, Roddy White. <laughs> yeah. Well, congratulations again, Roddy, on going into the Falcons' ring of honor. And there's a signal that we have Dr. Data. A.K. Rick Austin back with us today after a week off. And you know what? We're so delighted that Ron told me before the show, he said, you know what? Give him the rest of the segment to make a, seg- to make a statement. So, Gooseman, we will. The floor is yours. Take it away. And I'm going right to your favorite topic. The New England Patriots are yes, already sir. putting the finishing touches on the greatest decade in NFL history. They've won 113 games nine division titles, and three Lombardi trophies. Now, the Indianapolis Colts hold the record for most victories in a decade with 115 in the 2000s. A 3-13 and season in 2019 would still allow New England to break that record. The Patriots have posted a 113-31 record this decade for a winning percentage of 78.5. That is another record. That tops the winning percentage of 73.3 set by the Cleveland Browns of the 1950s. The Patriots could go 5-11 this season and still claim the record for the best winning percentage of the decade at 73.7. But don't look for the Patriots to collapse in 2019 with the retirement of Rob Gronkowski in the calendar flipping into the 40th year for Tom Brady. New England has has two 100-win decades, also winning 112 games in the 2000s. The engine behind that success has been Brady, who has taken the snaps in New England for the last 18 seasons. So how important are quarterbacks? The only other franchises with two 100-win decades are the Dallas Cowboys and the San Francisco 49ers. The Cowboys won 105 games with Roger Staubach in the 70s and 101 with Troy Aikman in the 1990s. The 49ers won 104 games with Joe Montana in the 80s and 113 with Steve Young in the 90s. All four of those quarterbacks are now in the Hall of Fame. The other six franchises with 100 victory decades are Miami and Oakland in the 70s. Kansas City in the 90s, Indianapolis, Philadelphia, and Pittsburgh in the 2000s. The Dolphins and Raiders both had Hall of Fame quarterbacks, and the Colts and Steelers had quarterbacks with Hall of Fame resumes. But the Patriots could have some company in the 100-victory fraternity. 
Six other NFL teams have mathematical chances of joining the Pats with those 100 victories this decade, although two of them are long shots. The Baltimore Ravens and Kansas City Chiefs both have 84 victories heading into 2019, meaning both would need perfect 16-0 seasons <laughs> to reach 100. Go ahead, bet against Patrick Mahomes. The Steelers need only six victories to reach 100 and join the 49ers and Pages with a pair of 100-win decades. The Packers and Seattle Seahawks would need 11 victories apiece in 2019 to reach 100, and the New Orleans Saints would need 13 victories to get there. But keep in mind, the Saints are coming off a 13-3 season in 2018. Now, the Steelers, Packers, Seahawks, and Saints all have Pro Bowl quarterbacks capable of delivering those 100 victories this decade. If all four hit the mark, the NFL will set a record with five teams in the 100-decade club. The record is four from the 2000 decade. Green Bay, New Orleans, and Seattle would also push the number of NFL franchises with 100 victory decades from 9 to 12. Gooseman, what happened to parity? Ron, parity only exists when you have 32 quarterbacks of equal ability. That's not the way of life in the NFL. You can count on two hands the quarterbacks you put in a franchise category. Those quarterbacks and their teams reap the benefits. Look at the Winnegas teams by decade. The Patriots each of the last two decades. Brady. 49ers of the 1990s. Steve Young. 49ers of the 80s. Joe Montana. Cowboys of the 70s. Roger Staubach. Packers of the 60s. Bart Starr. Cleveland Browns of the 50s. Otto Graham. Notice a trend there, Ron? <laughs> hey, Ron, I got a question for you before I ask Goose this. I thought it was a couple of shows ago, the Goose Man was saying, I want a statute of limitations on Tom Brady mentions. He did. And now he devotes love his entire Tom segment Brady. to this. No, he we did. we like when Ron and I talk about Tom Brady, not the whole show for you. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, there we go. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this one's for the Goose Man. Goose, do these number then validate the Patriots as the greatest dynasty ever? Well, I know who you're giving your vote to. Um, let me say this. With 17 division titles, 13 AFC championship game appearances, 8 AFC titles, and 6 Lombardi trophies, it's difficult to argue they aren't. But with 10 consecutive championship game appearances, the 50s Browns are in the discussion. So are the Packers with 6 NFL title games and 5 championships over a span of 7 seasons in the 60s. But the Patriots, with a sustained dynasty of 19 seasons, in that mind, in that in my mind, that's the tiebreaker. That's a long run for a dynasty. Well, Gooseman, look, obviously that's quite an accomplishment uh, by uh, by my old town hometown team. Uh, but don't you think they could never have done it without the utter incompetence of the Jets, Bills, and Dolphins? <laughs> well, for most, I mean, most of the past two decades, they were guaranteed six wins before the season even started. So, how much of this is the brilliance of Bill Belichick and the Patriots and how much is it uh, the dim-wittedness of the people running the Jets, Bills, and Dolphins? Well, he hasn't, he hasn't often played AFC East teams in title games or Super Bowls, so I think there's something to the Belichick-Brady Belichick magic, but I do agree. I, I think it's a huge edge for the Patriots for playoffs, uh, seating anyway, to have those six wins uh, up on a board before you start. Because that, that gives you a leg up on getting that, that First round home field, uh, the the first round bye, the the ultimate home field. I, I do think they've really capitalized on on what the sorry division that uh, that is your northeast. Yeah. Or they write them in ink when the schedule comes out. They don't write them in pencil. They write them in ink. Win, win. <laughs> <laughs> hey, 
Bruce, man, you mentioned, I think, the second-place team was Dallas, correct, in terms of the winningest team of the decades? With, no, uh, no, uh, no, I don't no, know what the winning percentage, percentage was. Anyway, the question is this. Which would you take, the best team of the, de- of the Patriots run or the best team of the Cowboys run in the 70s? Um, I would take the best team of the Cowboys run in the 70s uh, because it was a different, it was a different game then. Um, I, I like the fact that, that the Cowboys succeeded in an era when they played defense. Right. And right now there's no right. playing a defense. I, I would lean toward that, but I do think as far as dynasty goes, I think the Patriots got it hands down. Well, thanks for that, Goose Man. And nice to have you back, especially when you talk about Tom Brady and the Patriots. We're going to commercial. When we return, we address the 2020 NCAA Football Hall of Fame and its candidates. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Okay, Ron, you were talking about the Jets and their genius. They hire a new GM, and his name is Joe Douglas. Not Buster Douglas, Joe Douglas, previously the Eagles' VP of player personnel. But more importantly, he's a former associate of new Jets coach Adam Gase, with the two, I think, working together in Chicago. I think it was 2015 when Douglas was the Bears scouting director. Anyway, we've got nepotism work here, all right? We've got nepotism pretty clear. But we should mention that Douglas started out in the Ravens scouting department, meaning he was schooled under Ozzie Newsom. That's a plus. And in Philadelphia, he had a hand in drafting Carson Wentz. And that's a plus. So, Goose, you know more about the draft than Ron and us combined. How do you like this move? Well, because of their experience in Chicago, I think it'll give Gaze a comfort level with the personnel side of the building, and that's very important. All factions in the building will now be on the same page. I'm not sure that was ever the case uh, in Jetsland. You know, teams that work together have a chance to succeed together. Well, they're always on the same page, Goose. They're on the back page of the post, and not for the right reasons either. Um, Ronnie, it seems to me this isn't so much about the Jets, really, as it is... You know, the Adam Gates Jets. It's not the New York Jets. It's the Adam Gates Jets. I mean, he helped right run Mike McCagnan out of town. Remember when we talked to Charlie Casserly, and he made that pretty clear. That's what he thought happened. And, and now he has a former associate in his place. So I guess my question to you, Ron, is this, and I, I really don't understand this. We were talking, as you mentioned in that earlier segment, about the Jets, Bills, and the Dolphins, and how they flopped all over each other. Well, how in the world did a guy, I'm talking about Adam Gates, who was 23 and 25 in his three years in Miami, get all this power <laughs> let us dial back one segment to dr data <laughs> they're idiots <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, look at i mean look, this all uh gase looks good he sounds good apparently he plays office politics really good uh, <laughs> but is he good at football and so far the jury is not out the jury says no he was supposed to be the guy who was going to solve ryan Tannehill's quarterback problems didn't happen Right. He was supposed to be a rising genius. He was going to match wits with Bill, aging Bill Belichick. Didn't happen. You know, I mean, it, it was wits versus nitwits. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't think it's ever a good idea if you tell me I can't function unless I have my friend in here to hold my hand. <laughs> I just Gee, thanks, Ron. I get go. them out of work here. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, good luck to Adam Gase and Joe Douglas because, you know what, guys? You're going to need it. Last time I checked, yeah, as Rick mentioned in the previous segment, Bill Belichick and Tom Brady... We're still in the division. All right.
right on to the rest of the world. The NFL, well, the National Football Foundation, not the NFL, National Football Foundation and Hall of Fame recently announced its list of candidates for the 2020 College Football Hall of Fame. Pretty good one. It includes 76 former players and five coaches from the football bowl division or subdivision and 101 players and 33 coaches from the divisional ranks. Okay, fine. That, that's the easy part, computing those numbers. Now on to the fine print. To qualify, candidates must have received first-team All-American recognition and be at least 10 full seasons beyond their last years of playing collegiate football. Coach, meanwhile, becomes eligible three full seasons after retirement or immediately after retirement, provided he's 70. And the winners will be officially inducted on December 8th in New York City. Candidates, though, will be chosen after votes by the 12,000 National Football Foundation members and Hall of Fame members after those votes are tabulated. And then they're submitted to a special honor court for review. So it's a long and deliberate process. And, Goose, man, it just it seems a bit complicated compared to what we do with Pro Football Hall of Fame. Is it better, do you think? Well, what I like is the fact they just spend the day discussing a larger slate of candidates. You know, my biggest complaint with our process is that too many qualified and worthy candidates slip through the cracks. There right. are all decade players that have never been discussed. We only discuss 15 finalists. There are, what, 100, 100, 101 players on a preliminary college ballot. That list will be weaned down by vote, and the committee, their honors court, will discuss 75 players. They're going to dis- discuss more, and good players aren't going to slip through the cracks. And I think, in the end, most of these guys are going to get in the Hall of Fame anyway, it's just a matter of time. Ron, what do you like about this process? What don't you? I, I don't know how much you know about it, but at, at least peripherally, what do you like about it? Well, I think they have some, at least they have some clear lines of distinction. You know, you must be a first-team All-American, and so that eliminates a hell of a lot of really good players, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, uh, but also eliminates a lot of debating, you know, and it provides uh, places for small college players without having them competing against some guy from Alabama, you know. Uh, so there's a place for everyone in this hall, uh, but not if you weren't a first-team All-American, uh, whereas we have first-team All-Decade players who have barely been discussed, let alone ever uh, allowed in the room. So I think that part of their uh, structure is pretty interesting. I'm not so excited about the uh, honor roll, honor committee, because uh, somehow it it smells a little bit of uh, juice in the books. In case these nitwits made any mistakes, we'll straighten it out, you know. Well, they got their honor committee. It's it's guys like Tom Osborne, guys who've been around football, who coach in football, and they've got, like I think, 12 members. So that's the one edge they've got in us. They've, they've got a committee that's seen a lot more football than, than our committee has in pro football. Uh, I, I do like that. There, there are a lot more senior eyes. And, and older players aren't automatically discarded because they played before 1990. Right. Okay, well, both of you guys, in fact, all three of us have seen the names involved here, and there are dozens of them. In fact, almost 200 to be exact. And I'll be honest, um, I don't see how you whittle this list down because you said they take a day. I could take a year to look at this list and still have trouble with it. Um, there's so many deserving candidates, some of whom are pro football Hall of Famers, and it seems to me it's a little like picking the 25 semifinals from the Hall's preliminary list every year. It's very difficult, but this one's much, much harder. I mean, much harder. And I, I'm not going to ask you to pick 25 here. I'm not. But how about, you know, I'll start with you, Goose. How about five players? Uh, and one must be a divisional choice, okay? One must be a divisional choice, and, and maybe one coach. So five players and one coach. And Goose, you start and there's one ground rule here. Okay, Ron, I think you'll sign off for this. There must be at least two 
two non-Michigan State players on your list. <laughs> well, let me give you a little tip on how you put the part, part of the weaning out process. Their rule of thumb is they do not elect a player from the same school in consecutive years. So Rocket Ismail went in last year from Notre Dame, Troy Palomalo, Southern Cal, Joe Thomas, Wisconsin, Lorenzo White, Michigan State. So don't look in for any fighting Irish, Trojans, Badgers, or Spartans in this class. You can also scratch Oklahoma, Texas, Florida State, and Arizona State from the list. So the, the one candidate, the biggest question mark is Eric Dickerson. Why isn't he already in? But he was involved in that death penalty case against SMU. Right. And seems to linger over his candidacy. I, I think he's probably the top guy. And then you can look at the guys that are now in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Ray Lewis, Tony Gonzalez. Uh, th- those guys, I think, are, would be the popular choices. Are those your choices? Uh, not necessarily. I think the key is you have to close your eyes to what a player did after college. Just right. focus on the four years in campus. So it doesn't matter that Lewis and Goodell is now busting the whole Pro Football Hall, Hall of Fame. Uh, the guy I think who has the best shot is former quarterback Eric Crouch in Nebraska. Yep. He's one of three former Heisman Trophy winners on the ballot, along with Carson Palmer and Rashawn Salam. But only Crouch was a four-year starter and won 42 games. So I think Crouch, well, I'd be surprised if Crouch is not in this list. Okay, Ronnie. Who do you like here? Well, the first three guys were, uh, um, as Gooch just suggested for me, Eric Crouch, Crouch uh, Carson Palmer, and uh, Rashawn Salam. They won the Eisman Trophy, which uh, says they were the best player in college football that year. Uh, they're consensus All-Americans, and they won the top honor. So how do you not, to me, those three are, are pretty easy. Um, uh, my other two players are uh, a little more uh, interesting. One is uh, Antoine randall because anybody who could play quarterback at Indiana and somehow even make this list... <laughs> <laughs> to go into the damn Hall of Fame on roller skates as soon as you get him out of the hospital. Which is probably where he is. And my divisional player is Rennie Ben from Lehigh. Uh, the guy is second all-time in touchdown receptions in one double-A college football with 44, trailing only one guy, Jerry Rice. If you're second to Jerry Rice, put your ass in whatever Hall of Fame it might be. Uh, and as for coaches, I had two. I had to go with two guys. Sorry. You know I like to bend the rules. But I have a really good reason, the best of reasons, actually. Uh, and they have Roy Kramer of the Central Michigan Chippewas and Jim Ostendorp of Amherst. They were the first two coaches to send me recruiting letters when I was in high school, which makes them astute judges of talent, obviously. <laughs> Those are pretty good reasons. Hey, Coach, you didn't give us a coach. Who's your coach? I, I, like, I like Kramer, the, the guy from Central Michigan. I mean, that's a, that's wow. a, a good level program. Uh, yeah. Wow, you know, Being from Michigan, I've, I've read about that program for a long time. Uh, okay. Let me throw another small college guy out there for you. This guy that the three of us know. The general manager of the Cleveland Browns, John Dorsey's on the ballot. Oh, oh, wow, cool. That's pretty wow, cool. Wow, well. I'll tell you one thing, Clark, Clark, I want to tell you one thing. I got my letter from Kramer, right? It starts off, hello from the Chippewas. That was the first thing I said. <laughs> I, I said, Jesus, this is like, from, am I going <laughs> to Jim Thorpe school? And then I went in 86. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Jim Thorpe. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, I'm going in a completely different direction. I'm going into the uh, off-ramp here. Um, to, uh, I'm going to Hanover here. I'm going to take quarterback Jim Chasey, the quarterback for the 1970 undefeated and 12th-ranked Dartmouth Indians. Wait a minute, he's not on this list? Well, he should be. So that's my write-in vote. Jim went on to play for the Montreal Alouettes of the CFL and was a great baseball player at Dartmouth. Okay, next up I take linebacker E.J. Anderson because he's the only two-time first-team All-American in Maryland history. Ohio State linebacker James Laurinaitis, three-time first-team All-American and two-time Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year. Then another linebacker, you know, it's a pattern here, guys. Dan Morgan of Miami, first player to sweep the Butkus Bednarik and Nagurski Awards in one season. And lastly, as you guys mentioned, Ron mentioned, 
Colorado running back Rashawn Salam because I love guys who play eight-man football in La Jolla and go on to not only become a Heisman Trophy winner but to lead the nation in yards rushing, scoring in all-purpose yards. And for my coach, I'm going to make it Troy's Larry Blakeney. One, because he's the all-time winner's coach of Sunbelt history. Two, because he led Troy to eight consecutive titles in eight seasons. Three, because they thought the Goose Man would choose Daryl Rogers. I really did. Um, <laughs> Goose, who's the easiest, who's the easiest choice for you here? Can't come back with a Spartan. They're Spartan. Yeah. Last year. <laughs> well, Put him in for a San Jose State years. <laughs> <laughs> What's our? Who's the easiest choice for you? A crouch. Oh, okay. And, and how hard was this for you guys? Because I really found it enormously difficult. Ron, was it difficult for you? Yeah, no, it was hard. I had to leave off uh, 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 one of my favorite guys. Uh, you guys know I've talked about, about him before. Me. EJ Junior Junior, son of EJ Junior Senior. Uh, yeah, right. You know, uh, right. and I wanted to go all EJs, and I was going to include uh, EJ Anderson as well. So it should be an EJ class. I'd be okay with. That. <laughs> hey, Ron, you know, well, you know, my 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 biggest surprise is that yeah. you didn't pick Andre Tippett. On this yeah, program. you know, I exactly. thought of the tip. I thought of tip. Yeah, I mean, look, they hadn't been to the Rose Bowl in twenty three years, so tip got there. Next thing you know, they were covered in petals. Well, was, good luck to everyone, especially the voters, because there's nothing easy about this Hall of Fame process. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Our next guest should be familiar to you. He certainly is to us, and that's Joe Horgan, whom we used to refer to as the Executive Director of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But Joe retired on June 1st after 42 glorious years there, or just before he was named the 47th winner of the Pro Football Writers Jack Horgan Award, named after Joe's father and given annually by the Pro Football Writers to the league or club official for his or her qualities and professionalism that help writers do their jobs. And I'll be honest with you, we cannot think of a more deserving recipient because Joe helped us do our jobs for many, many years, in fact, decades. Joe, congratulations and welcome back. Well, first of all, thank you for that, Clark. And I've uh, told people in response to you know the award, uh, it seems only uh, the perfect way to end a 42-year career by getting an award named after the man who gave me my first job at age 13, and <laughs> my father. <laughs> well, Joe, and that leads me to my first question. How gratifying was it for you to, to get that, and, and how surprised were you when you got the call? Well, um, both uh, uh, both instances. I mean, I was I was stunned, uh, but you know, you know the uh, the strange thing is when you get a call like that and you have absolutely no uh, preparation for it. You know, your response is kind of being dumbfounded. But in retrospect, you know, it, it you know it means an awful lot to me because obviously my uh, it's an award named after my father, and uh, you know I've watched over the years the many men and women who have won the award and been so proud of you know who they are and that uh, and that uh, this, as you say this award has been given out for I think forty seven years that that in and of itself is meaningful to myself and my family so it was just a great uh, thing and when uh, Bob Glauber called me I mean I couldn't have been more surprised I really truly was caught off guard but it was what do you think and, uh, you know. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Rick. What do you think your dad would say if you were here today? What do you tell you? Well, you know, he'd say, your mother's proud of you. 
<laughs> just, the, just the way he was. You know, it was everything was about my mother. You know, be good to your mother. Your mother's proud of you. So yeah, no, he would. He'd be very proud. Obviously, uh, uh, at the time, you know, when he died, you know, he was just forty-seven years old. Uh, so I had not yet really begun a career. I just uh, was in the military when he passed away. So it was, uh, you know. It, you know, he never had an opportunity to uh, understand that I followed in his footsteps in the, in the sense of uh, going into sports. Joe, like I said, you've worked there 42 years. You're going to work every day, same building. How hard is it to leave that building? Well, you know, Rick, it, it, it's, it's difficult because, as you say, it, it's not just going there for 42 years because it's your job, but it, it is, you know, it does become your life, and that's in a good way because uh, there's so many good things that happen as a result of that building. You know, the, the opportunities that I had in my career and to you know, work with folks like the three of you is, you know, and I'm not saying it because the three of you are on the phone, <laughs> but, you know, it's, uh, that is, to me, uh, you know, the rewards of what I did in that building were felt more outside the building. I tell my staff that all the time. You know, the, if you do your job every day and you do it well, that's what you're, you're expected to do. And, you know, the, the rewards come from helping the people outside of the organization that, that your job calls you to do. You know, and that's where you, you feel like you've accomplished something when you, when you help others, when you share what you know, what you learn, what you do for a job, and you share it with others, then it becomes a rewarding um, you know, uh, life's application. That really is what uh, I think it's all about. So, you know, um, yes, going to that building is, is one thing I'll miss it, but it really is what you did for others outside the building that is the most rewarding, and I hope to continue to do that. So, Joe, what is your legacy? Well, gosh, Rick, you know, you know, to me, you know, when I got to the Hall of Fame, it was 1977. It was a pretty humble place. Uh, you know, it, um, I think if I were to summarize my, my proudest accomplishments, I think they would be that we made the uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame one of uh, uh, just 3% of the museums in the country that are nationally accredited. Uh, so we we're very proud of that. But also the creation of the Ralph Wilson Research, uh, uh, Research excuse me, um, uh, Center at the uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame, our archives, the way we developed that from really nothing to the uh, epitome of what you would call uh, uh, Pro Football's archives, uh, those were two very rewarding things. And the selection process, of which all three of you are such a key part of, that is what the Hall of Fame is. It is about selecting members to the Pro Football Hall of Fame and maintaining that integrity, that level of integrity. So I, I hope I accomplished that, and I know I'm really at the mercy of you guys when it comes to that, but <laughs> that was uh, something that I worked very hard at, is just making sure that we maintained the highest level of integrity with the selection process, created a great museum, and, and uh, maintained and created a, uh, established and maintained and created a, a great archive for the game. So when induction week uh, comes around this year, what what will you be doing, Joe? You were always running around like a chicken with your head cut off that week, uh, pretty busy. Will you still be pretty busy, or are you just going to kick back and smoke you know, cigars? It's funny. Well, one of the Hall of Famers of course, we're going to see you in August at the, you know, the enshrinement ceremony. I say, yeah, you'll see me, but you won't recognize me. 
and I had been saying that jokingly, and then there was this pause when I was telling somebody that, and I thought, oh my God, he thinks I'm sick. You know, <laughs> that I might. So I said, no, no, you know, you won't recognize me, but I said, because for once, I'll be the guy smiling. You know? Right. <laughs> it's, uh, it's the stress is gone. I'll be, I'll be enjoying myself. So, um, yeah, I, I plan to be there, and uh, at this point, I'm hoping that uh, my purpose for being there is to purely enjoy it, but I'm sure I'll have to take on some responsibilities as, as needed. But uh, I look forward to it because, I, I, you know, truly, it's like, you know, you guys know, you go to a lot of you know, Super Bowls and, you know, you walk away and you, 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 because you're involved in it from a different level, you don't have that same experience that a fan has just absorbing and enjoying something. You're looking at it as, you know, from the context of a reporter or from my case, you know, producing the show on the, on the stage. You know, it, it, it's different when you're watching it to just to enjoy it. What, uh, over all these years that you've been there and you've been in, all those selection committee meetings. Um, what would you say was your biggest disappointment, and how often did you walk out of that room saying, what the hell are these guys thinking? How did they not put in player you X? Know, I can honestly say, Ron, I never walked out of that room saying, what's wrong with these guys? Because, I, as you know, you know, three of you have been there, and, and the, the changes that I've seen over the years, and again, it's been, I've been in that room for many years, but the level of professionalism continued to grow it year after year after year to where now I, I, I truly do believe that you know we have the finest system for electing Hall of Famers, but the most prepared selectors. This isn't a mail-in-your-vote sort of thing. Uh, you guys come in and you're so prepared and you're, you know, I have more phone calls from guys on the selection committee campaigning to have a greater role than, you know, most people would expect. You know, you, you get a lot of, uh, you know, committees like this. People are kind of trying to do the minimum and still be on a committee. In this case, they get mad at me if I'm not allowing them to do the maximum. So, uh, and that is, you know, you know, when, when I say that, I mean, that is, that is a good thing. Everybody wants to, you know, push as hard as they can for what they believe in and, uh, and hold others accountable, each other accountable. I just think the whole thing is, um, to me, I've just been so amazed and, and proud of the, uh, the level of professionalism in that room over the years that you know, I have no way of uh, saying that, or no right to say that uh, I've ever walked out disappointed. There's been, you know, classes where I've been surprised, you know, as to who eventually got that 80% or who didn't, but I've never disappointed because, as you know, you know, when we get in that room, 18 finalists, and, you know, of those 18, you're pretty sure that, if not all of them, the majority of them will eventually be in the Hall of Fame. It's just a question of who goes that year. Well, if you one quick question. If you, uh, if as your parting gift, rather than uh, trips to exotic places and, uh, and all manner <laughs> of things, they had said, Joe, you know more about this than anybody. We're going to let you touch one guy, one guy who's not in here. Is, who is the one guy, if Joe Horgan could have his way that you would put in the Well, you know, it's funny because a guy named Clark Judge asked me that question not too long ago. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I and, know your response. You the same answer just, just so I sound consistent, but, uh, you know, Duke's leader is the guy that I think uh, kind yes. of got short shrifted along the way, and, and he played in the 20s. He's you know, lineman and played with the Chicago Cardinals. All those things are working against you, and you know when you, when the years pass, because fewer people are familiar with the player, fewer people are familiar with the team, fewer people are familiar with the era. Uh, so you know that you know, makes it um, more difficult. So he's the kind of guy that I have my my sights set on and hope uh, to you know, wave that magic wand someday and help him get in. 
Well, Drew, I'm glad you mentioned Duke Slater because it's a perfect segue into my next question because a hot-button topic we're always asked about is, what's going on with the Centennial class? And I, I know it's been rumored for months, but we get asked about it virtually every day. So what is going mm-hmm. on? Has it been approved? And, and if so, how will the candidates be chosen? Yeah, well, it's, it's uh, let me put it this way. It has been in principle approved. We are still, you know, uh, our board meets literally this, later this month, our Hall of Fame board of directors, and we'll go to them again with here's some uh, more detailed plans from uh, different from what we produced uh, for them uh, two months ago. Uh, but I, I will tell you this, that uh, we do not have the final, uh, if you will, blessing on it yet, only because we have to work out details, not a question of whether or not they support the idea everybody does but now we just have to come down with what the size of the class would be you know uh, how the you know how they will be selected and who will do it uh, you know uh, without going into too much detail i think it'll be a, a way in which we honor those players coaches and contributors who participated in the game in the in the game's first century that have been for no to no fault of their own uh, overlooked and we want to make sure that they get their fair shake before we start moving into the next century and have this continuing growing backlog of players who thrill full of their own other than sometimes just mere numbers, numbers game in terms of getting elected. And then in other cases, as I said, Duke Slater is the perfect example of playing for a team that doesn't exist anymore in the sense of when it was in Chicago played a position that was hard enough for people to understand uh, even today uh, as a lineman, but uh, in an era in which that was even less understood. Uh, you know, in the 60s when they were trying to pick players from the 20s, that was a very tough ta- task. Uh, and, you know, there are just so many other factors that move into the you know, consideration for players like Duke. So what I'm getting my long-winded answer here is that the centennial class uh, is going to happen. Exactly how many and how we have it worked out. I, we've got a couple of different proposals there, but I'm looking forward to it, and I know you guys are as well, because uh, the three of you have been intimately involved not only in the selection process, but as, as I'm not telling anybody that listens to this show anything they don't know already, but uh, with a real concern over the players and um, candidates from the years gone by that may not have gotten their just due. Joe, we got about 30 seconds. When you went to work 42 years ago, it was a building. You're leaving it now, it's a campus. Does your make your head spin all the changes you've seen in the physical plant? Yeah, it does. It really does, Rick. You know, and, and the, the interesting thing is, I said recently to somebody uh, that I work with as we were walking out together, I said, you know, it's nice to be able to turn around and look at this and say, you know, I, I helped do this. Because you, you really do have this, you know, this physical place you look at and feel a sense of pride in how it has changed. And, uh, you know, I was encouraging him to say that, you know, to realize the same thing, that every day uh, we work to be a little bit better, do things a little bit better at the Hall of Fame, and you can look back at it and see your results. That's something that's very good, uh, very rare, I think, in people's occupations, you know, largely, uh, but uh, a real reward in and of itself. Joe, thanks so much for the time, and again, Congratulations on keeping the Horgan Award all in the family. Well, thank you, Clark. I appreciate that very much. <laughs> Thanks, Joe.
That was Hall of Fame former executive director Joe Horgan, who's the winner of this year's Jack Horgan Award. Appropriate. Up next, it's a two-minute drill. You'll listen to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're almost at the end of the first half of this program, so you know what that means. That's the two-minute warning. Yes, sir, it's a two-minute drill with Rick asking this week's questions. Gooseman, take it away. And New England canceled the final week of OTAs. Are the Patriots that good? Are those OTAs that worthless? Neither. Yes, Tom Brady, you don't. Game, set, match. <laughs> Both! Patriots' final OTA practice was paintball war. No wonder Brady skips half these things. <laughs> Same thing Malcolm Jenkins skipped. Filled off his OTAs in a contract suit, but showed up at minicamp without a new deal. So what's the difference between voluntary and mandatory? The spelling. One you get yelled at by your wife for going, the other one you get fined by the team for not going. <laughs> Kicker Robbie Gould, on the other hand, skipped San Francisco's minicamp in his own contract dispute. When's the last time in the NFL a kicker had any leverage? 1871, Mrs. O'Leary's cow. <laughs> Whenever they line up kicking at Mile High Stadium. Ron, players want teams to pay them more money when they outperform their contracts. How come the players never offer to give money back when they underperform those contracts? Because they go broke. <laughs> because, like owners, they're phony capitalists. <laughs> Minnesota tight end Kyle Rudolph is 29 years old. He says he'll be a Viking for life after signing a four-year contract extension. In a salary cap world, define the word life. Uh, it's the one cereal I can't live without. Mikey likes it. He likes it. Life. A career shorter than you think. <laughs> Mike Evans, Dale Evans, or Linda Evans? Oh, please. Linda Evans. She launched a dynasty. Really? Is there a reason to even ask this question, Gooseman? Yeah. She was dynastic, not to mention El Fuego. Yeah. <laughs> On a scale of 1 to 10, what's the drama level at the Pittsburgh minicamp without Antonio Brown and Le'Veon Bell? Uh, one. It's more like Caddyshack there. Like my house, it has been declared a drama-free zone. <laughs> uh, scale of 1 to 10, what's your confidence level in the Pittsburgh team without Brown and Bell? Uh, probably about a 5. More like Fast Times of Ridgemont High. Sans I can't believe I'm, believing, I'm agreeing with Clark. It was never very high. It's always low single digits. As long as Tomlin's there, 5 sounds good. What did the Houston Texans see during their OTAs that cost general manager Brian gain his job? An axe. <laughs> <laughs> Billy O'Brien saw Brian Ganey and said, Get out of here, you knucklehead. That's the end of the That's the end of our first hour, but stay where you are. We have 60 more minutes left that I promise you, you won't want to miss. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network. I'm Clark, along with Rick and Ron. And in this hour, we're going to hear from the NFL's most traveled quarterback and Hall of Fame voter John McClain on the Texan search for GM. And spoiler alert, people, we'll also hear why our Rick Goslin thinks former Browns and Ravens owner Art Modell belongs in Ken. But first, first, guys, I know it's an interesting item this week, and that's the prices for the Raiders-Packers preseason game in Winnipeg are through the roof with the cheapest ticket at $112. For a preseason game, yeah, true. But doesn't stop there. The NFL has another preseason game. That'd be Dallas against the L.A. Rams scheduled in Honolulu, where fans there are complaining the ticket prices are 
What else? Too high. So that leads me to this question. If the NFL can and does find a more lucrative market for preseason games in faraway places that don't have NFL teams, Ron, what's to prevent it from doing more of this in the future? Uh, absolutely nothing. If, if there's one thing you can count on, is the NFL's willingness to gouge the public and the public's willingness to be gouged. Football fans are like the Washington Generals, that team that always loses to the Globetrotters. They are both willing to get taken advantage of, and so why not gouge their eyes out? <laughs> Clark, that would be a back-to-the-future trend because the NFL did pursue those markets in the past. Now, back in the 60s, the exhibition schedule was littered with non-NFL cities. Wichita, Kansas, Hershey, PA, Bangor, Maine, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Just understand that your crowds are going to be a little bit smaller and a little less willing to pay those NFL prices for (laughs) fake football. And that, people, is why he is Dr. Data. I did not know that. Hey, second question here, quickly. Uh, Why should anyone, I guess, why should anyone really care where they go? Because if fans in, say, let's say, L.A. aren't going to a preseason game or on, um, why should... They really care if the NFL takes it to Hawaii or where else and charge fans their double. I mean, if you're in Hawaii and think the price is too high, I have a solution. Don't go. Well, exactly. You're right. And the, and the teams in these in these NFL cities, they don't care because if they cared, they'd be going to the games. Look, uh, uh, complaining about uh, ticket prices like complaining about a bad TV show or a ball game. You got a clicker, use it. You got a mind, don't buy the ticket. <laughs> it's a ripoff yeah, of Dallas I- as much as it is Bangor, Maine. <laughs> All I know is if they moved a preseason game here in Connecticut and charged $100 or $10 or no dollars, I still wouldn't go on the reason because it's a preseason game. Okay, enough of that. Let's take a break. When we return, it's the Hall of Fame case for Art Modell. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. You know something, guys? Once upon a time, I thought having your stocks go up in smoke wasn't good. I guess those days are over. The reason I say that is because analysts are projecting that sales for marijuana in this country, meaning recreational medicinal marijuana, those sales could surpass the NFL in total revenue by next year. Now, two reasons why I find that fascinating. One, the NFL's yearly revenue is pegged at $15 billion. That's a billion with a B. And two, the NFL CBA bans the use of recreational marijuana with possible suspensions in place for anyone who violates it. But that 2020 projection that analysts are talking about, it means, it means that a whole lot of people are going through reefer madness. So with that in mind, and with 38 states legalizing marijuana, Gooseman, when does the NFL fall into line? And, and is this one of those chess pieces that he uses in the CBA talks, I think as Ron mentioned in the first hour, in its quest for an 18-game season? Clark, I think the NFL is going to need more than marijuana in the chess match for an 18-game season. It, it's going to be hard for football, or any sport for that matter, to continue cracking down on marijuana if weed becomes universally legal, and it does appear to be headed in that direction. If the NFL is all about the health of the players, and marijuana does have medicinal qualities, this is a fight the NFL cannot win. Well, I got to tell you guys, uh, uh, you know, a number of the fellows with whom I grew up uh, are very happy to hear the, about the booming marijuana business still being in the trade. In fact, one of them said to me, "What's all this talk about home delivery? We've been doing home delivery for forty years," <laughs> which is true. Uh, but you know, this is why the NFL is talking about reviewing it with some phony uh, medical panel of experts, you know, so they can launder it out and make it look like it's a, you know, this is all. But look. 
you want to review the uh, wondrous uh, 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 properties of Wacky Tabacky, you just get Cheech and Chong, man. They're, they're, they could be your ex- <laughs> They are an expert panel. <laughs> hey, Ron, you know those friends you're talking about? Once yeah. upon a time, they would arrest them. Today, then they're going to make them the chairman of the board. No, exactly. That's what one of my friends said. Now i got to open up a storefront. There you go. <laughs> well, I, I know I addressed this last week with guest host Ira Kaufman from Tampa, but, Goose, I'll, I'll ask you here. If players are going to agree to an 18-game regular season, which I don't think they will, but anyway, if they, if they are... Um, I believe they must start the conversation by having the NFL give up something dear to them, and that would be uh, guaranteed contracts. And you know what? I don't see or foresee owners caving in there. How about you? Now, Clark, I think we're already headed in that direction. You know, Carson Wentz gets $107 million guaranteed. C.J. Mosley, a middle linebacker, gets $51 million guaranteed. Landon Collins, a safety, gets $45 million guaranteed. You know, I'm not sure we'll ever see the day where all 1,600 NFL players have guaranteed contracts. But I can see the number of players and the number of guaranteed dollars increasing at all positions. But again, I, I don't really see that as a bargaining chip for an 18-game season. Okay, bottom line question here. Do you think the upcoming CBA negotiations yield an 18-game regular season and or no penalties for marijuana? Ron? Uh, well, I do think that they're getting they're getting close to the no penalties for marijuana, in, in part because teams are getting tired of losing their their players for smoking weed, while at the same time getting them addicted to opiates. You know, just they know it doesn't make any sense. This <laughs> is crazy. So uh, they're going to find some way to get around that. Uh, this 18 game regular season, I think, is going to be a little more challenging than uh, than some people think. Uh, because in the end, they got you know. On the one hand, they're trying to sell this concept of player safety, and the other hand, it's, yeah, it's such a safe game. Now let's play two more games so you can yeah. plow into each other for another six hours. Exactly. Uh, and that's going to be a tough sell to the players. But in the end, the owners will say, "You want more money? You want the cap to go up? Then you got to play more games." Good. I say, I say no to the eighteen games and yes to the marijuana. Well, here's another bottom line question for you. Should former Browns and Ravens owner Art Modell be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame? It's a question that our Rick Gosson addressed this week on our website. That'd be talkoffamenetwork.com. And Gooseman, tell listeners what you had to say and why you think Art's got a reasonable shot of making it to Canton. Well, Dan Reeves, the owner, not the coach, moved his NFL team from Cleveland to Los Angeles. Lavar Hunt moved his AFL team from Dallas to Kansas City. And Al Davis moved his Raiders from Oakland to L.A. and back again. Leaving one city for another didn't keep any of those three team owners out of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But bolting one city for another with his NFL franchise is keeping Art Modell out of Canton. Thou shalt not leave Cleveland. But that's what Modell did in 1996. His inability to reach a stadium deal with the city of Cleveland triggered his relocation of the franchise to Baltimore. This after Cleveland built a ballpark for the baseball Indians in an arena for the NBA Cavaliers that both opened in 1994. Modell promised never to leave Cleveland when he took over controlling interest of Municipal Stadium in the 1970s. But by the 1990s, the Browns were losing millions each season playing in the ancient facility. So he moved. Modell did leave the colors and logos of the franchise in Cleveland, something the Cardinals didn't do when they left Chicago for St. Louis, and the Colts didn't do when they left Baltimore for Indianapolis. He changed the name and identity of his franchise in the move from Browns to Ravens. Cleveland went without an NFL team for three seasons before the city finally built a new stadium and the league placed an expansion franchise there 
1999. Five years after leaving Cleveland, the Ravens won the first Super Bowl in franchise history in 2000. Although Modell passed away in 2012, the animosity remains. He's been all of the fame finalist twice, but was passed over by the selection committee each time. Lost in his Hall of Fame candidacy was all the good Modell did for his team and his league. He served as the only elected NFL president from 1967 to 69 upon the merger of the two leagues. He served on the realignment committee and facilitated the merger by agreeing to move his Browns from the NFL to the AFC. He also served as chairman of the league's labor committee and was a key figure in the negotiations of the league's first collective bargain agreement in 1968. He was a member of Commissioner Pete Rozelle's inner circle and instrumental in the creation of NFL films in 1965. He served as chairman of the league's TV committee for 31 years, negotiating contracts with the networks that drove up the value of the league and its teams, contracts that deepened the revenue pot from the millions into the billions under his watch. He also helped launch the Monday Night Football franchise. Modell has two championship rings as an owner, one in Cleveland, the other in Baltimore. His teams played in seven league or conference championship games, and he also hired Ozzie Newsom as the NFL's first African-American general manager. Jim Brown, the most iconic of the Cleveland Browns, says Modell belongs in the Hall of Fame, quote, regardless of what the people of Cleveland think, you just don't deal with revenge and animosity to a man who has done so much for the game. I would agree. Well, goes here's my... Uh Look, in a lot of ways, you make a strong case for Mordell, and there is a strong case for him. But here's where my sticking point becomes. Uh, there's always this talk about he didn't get stadium deal. His financial problems were not a result of a stadium deal. They were a result of his own profligate spending, which continued when he went to Baltimore and ultimately forced him to have to sell the team there. So why should a city that had rep- continuously for decades sold out, uh, whether the team was good, bad, or indifferent, why do they have to pay for the extravagances of an owner who... For whatever reason, can't stop, couldn't stop spending. Well, because the city did it for the Indians and Cavaliers. The Indians were coming off seven consecutive losing seasons, and the Cavaliers were a middle-of-the-road NBA franchise without any rings when the city put them both in new buildings in 1994. The, the Browns had given Cleveland its last championship in 1964 and had been to the AFC title game three times in the previous nine seasons before the move. Wouldn't you want to take care of the one franchise that's actually generating excitement in town? Well, yeah, perhaps. Yeah, Goose, I, I, I agree with what you're saying, Goose, it, it, because I just wonder, why can't Cleveland let go? Listen, um, I, I get what they're going through. I was in Baltimore when the Colts left, and people there were crushed. But eventually they, they let go. I mean, Cleveland fans haven't, and it's been over two decades since the Browns left. Plus, as you mentioned, they got to keep the Browns' name and its history. So why can't people there let go of their anger toward art? I mean, he made a business decision. He wanted a new stadium, you said. He didn't get it, so he moved. Seems like we've heard that before, and as you mentioned, didn't prevent three other owners from getting to Canton. I, I think the fact that the Ravens won the Super Bowl in 2000, that was their team. That was Cleveland's team. That was their championship, but the trophies in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. I think if the Ravens had flopped in Baltimore, I think there'd be far less animosity toward Modell. Of course, you he also promised. Guess, to, I also promised to never leave, and, and you know, if you ever been to the dog pound, those guys take promises seriously. <laughs> so. Yeah, right. Well, my guess is the Hall's board of selectors must change significantly before it has a chance. If in fact he does get a chance, thanks for that, Goose. That was good. Uh, up next, we're going to find out what's going on in Houston, where the Texans are looking for another GM. This is the Talk of Fame Network. 
This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, most of the NFL is going on vacation this month, except, well, except the Houston Texans apparently aren't most of the NFL. Uh, they're working on their next GM after firing Brian Gain last week. So the obvious question is, what or who's next? And you know what? I'm certain that our next guest knows. And that's friend of the show and Hall of Fame voter John McLean of the Houston Chronicle. And John, before we get to the Texans, I want to congratulate you on being named to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame, along, of course, with another friend of the show and Hall of Fame voter, Shereen Williams. It's long overdue and well, well deserved, John. Guys, thank you very much for somebody who grew up in Texas, has been writing full-time for 47 years, including the last 44 for the Houston Chronicle. It means so much to me, and I really appreciate you guys uh, acknowledging it, and uh, thank you so much. You got it. Um, I guess now we're going to go from there to the team that you cover, and that's the Houston Texans. I mentioned Brian Gain. Um, why do you have to go? And I guess the second part of this question is, does this, as some people at least have suggested, mean that now more than ever the Texans belong to one man and that one man is Bill O'Brien? Uh, absolutely not. Not if they get Nick Casario, who they targeted. They tried to get Casario in January of 2018. The Patriots were in the playoffs. And as you guys know, during the season, you can deny requests on anybody. They denied requests on Casario, their number one choice. Also denied a request on uh, Monty Austin Ford, who is their director of college scouting, who had two stints with the Texans under Charlie Cashley before he went to New England in 06. And so uh, they have two people here, Bill O'Brien, who's really close with Casario, and a guy they hired on April 2nd, Jack Easterby. Jack Easterby spent the previous six years in New England, two years before that, Kansas City. Scott Pioli hired him. He'd been uh, before that University of South Carolina. He is the, they call him the life-slash-character coach in New England. Here he's a senior executive VP of, of, of uh, development, and he's got his hands in every part of the organization. When I read, spent a day looking at stories about him from the New England media, and I was amazed at how praised he was by everybody. And so the Texans got him, according to Albert Breer, away from outbidding for two other teams like Carolina, and I can't remember who the other one was, said among others. So he came in here. He's involved in the search. He, Bill O'Brien, the owner, Cal McNair, the uh, uh, senior VP of administration, Chris Olson, who does contracts, and team president, Jamie Roots. And they interviewed Ray Farmer. They interviewed Martin Mayhew. Now, they're open to interview Nick Casario, but the Patriots are not going to let this happen without a fight. So, John, can you explain the timing? And were you surprised? This came down. I, uh, Rick, I had been here hearing rumblings of discontent with Brian Gain as a general manager, not as a personnel guy, which is what Brian was here for three years, and he participated in four drafts and free agent periods for former general manager Rick Smith. But I was hurt, told that Cal McNair was not happy with the way he was doing the general manager job, which is a lot of other departments under him, and he did an evaluation top to bottom. There were others involved in that evaluation. 
gain one, you got to accept a demotion and like take some of his authority taken away just to control personnel. And really, he didn't make a pick without Bill O'Brien signing off on it. Every personnel decision he made, and he did a good job as a personnel man, uh, O'Brien had a hand in it. So uh, Cal McNair determined that he could try to make it work, hope it got better, or you could pull the plug now. I believe that when they did that deal on Friday, they were pretty sure they were going to get Casario. And I think there's a good chance if the Patriots are looking for a loophole to in his contract or with the league bylaws, because the bylaws said if you're going to give a guy full authority over personnel, which they're willing to do, that was in the request, and then uh, if you are and he doesn't have it with another team, then he's going to have to be able to interview. And so how their other alternative in New England, if they can't find a loophole, is to give him the Josh McDaniels treatment, get him over to Robert Kraft's house, make him an offer he can't refuse, and uh, maybe they're going to try that as well. They could demand compensation, like the number one draft choice. They could threaten, threaten tampering. I think that'd be hilarious, the Patriots saying they were wronged by a team that broke the rules. So I don't think it's uh, I think it's going to play out a little bit. You know, when the Jets asked for permission to talk to Joe Douglas, and the time that Joe was done on his six-year, three-million-year contract, I think it was four or five days. The Texans fired game Friday about 2 or 3 o'clock. They put in a formal request that night, Friday night, to interview uh, Casario, and uh, so you knew it gave the Patriots a weekend to get to to marshal the troops, so to speak. And he's still not here. So there's a lot going on up there. Here they're just waiting for the interview. And I believe this. If indeed he's allowed to interview, he's coming here. Okay, one other question. Would, would, would this have happened if Bob, Bob McNair was still alive and on the team? That's, an inter- that's a question, Rick, that everybody is asking. And Cal McNair, who's been his dad's right-hand man since 99 and really has been running a team for the last two years because Bob had been battling cancer again. And uh, so Cal's been involved in every decision, including when they hired Brian Gain, when they got turned down on Casario and Ozen Ford and Joe Douglas. And Brian Gunnikitz came here and he had dinner with Bill O'Brien, and then Murphy called him and said, we'll hire you, got on a plane and went back home, became the Packles general manager, so they, they hired Gain. Uh, he's been there involved in every decision. So I'm guessing that the way things have played out, I don't think Bob McNair would have tried to force the situation and hope it got better. He told me one time when he fired a couple people, I'll give people rope, but if they hang themselves, I'm, they're gone. So that's something we'll never know. A lot of people are asking here because Cal McNair made that decision. Uh, John, you know, uh, how overall do you think this uh, will uh, impact the both short-term and long-term future of the Texans? If it, if it turns into another sort of situation, as you just described, well, we want this guy, but we can't get him. We want this guy, and he doesn't come. You know, I mean, normally these jobs of people are you know jumping over the fence to try to uh, take them, and and here there's the possibility of a of a lengthy fight uh, with the Patriots over over Nick. Um, 
what's a long term? Well, as you guys know, the Patriots own the Texans. The only difference in this fight, Brady can't be involved. <laughs> and so I think that uh, it could drag out. Uh, it could be Roger Goodell has to get involved and determine if there's going to be any compensation. But the only reason that would happen is if they could prove they tampered. Now, uh, Jack Easterby was back getting his third ring with the Patriots, and he and Casario were really tight. And as somebody said, they were chatting each other up, which you would do for your friend. But unless you have proof that he was talking to him about the job, even if you believe it, you got to have proof. So that's the only way they're going to get compensation. That's like Texas is going to give up their number one pick. At least I don't think they would for a general manager. But if the Texans don't get Casario, they have two paths to go down. Number one, they could interview, expand the search, and interview other people. Anybody they bring in here is going to have to have been working with Bill O'Brien or know him because this is his third general manager. And I believe if he can't make it work with the third GM, that'll lead to him being fired. And I also think if they didn't find somebody who fill that bill, so to speak, they could spend a year with their current structure in place. And that is uh, Chris Olson. They're, they're, he does contracts and oversees the cap. He's always answered to the GM. Bill O'Brien would be over personnel. Well, he kind of was not over it, but they didn't make a decision he didn't want. And he also was uh, in control of the game day roster. And then Cal, they, Cal McNair would make a final decision, but that's not the way they've operated. Charlie Casserly, they hired him before their first season after he got the franchise. He stayed through the 2006 draft. Rick Smith was hired for Denver. He stayed until he resigned in January of 2018 to take care of his wife, Tiffany, who was suffering from breast cancer and died this year. And then, of course, Brian Gain, who lasted one and a half years. They're going to be paying Rick Smith, Brian Gain, and a new general manager. <laughs> Three GMs all at the same time. What's the problem there? I mean, with with is it that Billy just can't get along with these guys? I mean, it, that isn't a pretty unusually large number of GMs to be plowing. Uh, it is. Well, he didn't get along with Rick Smith. He and Brian Gain were friends, and their relationship, as I wrote, eroded. But Brian had a relationship that eroded with others as well. And uh, so O'Brien's getting all the blame. As he's head coach, he should. You guys should have seen the what I wrote called the Inquisition today. It was the biggest crowd of media I've seen since the draft. And uh, everybody just hammered Bill about this. We didn't get to ask him any personnel questions, I don't think, because it was all about this. And there was, he wasn't. Gonna, he said nice things about Brian Gain, but he wasn't going to talk about things said behind the scenes. And, of course, he said he has not talked to Nick Casario. That'd be tampering. And uh, so it was definitely an inquisition, and I guarantee you he was relieved when it was over and was glad that J.J. Watt was up next. <laughs> hey, John. Thanks, as always. We've got to run. But good luck with that next GM. And, again, congratulations on being named to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame. Clark and, and Ron and Rick, thank you very much. I've known you guys forever. Your icons and NFL, covering the NFL for decades. And it's an honor being on with you. Thank you very much. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. That was Hall of Fame voter and icon John McLean of the Houston Chronicle. Up next, it's the most traveled quarterback in the NFL. Who is it? Well, tune in. You're listening to the Talk Fame Network. 
This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Our next guest is the most traveled quarterback in NFL history, playing for eight teams in his 16 seasons. And I'm talking, of course, with Josh McCown, who also went to training camp with two other NFL teams and spent a season during the prime of his career playing for the Hartford Colonials of the United Football League. I live here in Connecticut. It's right up the road. So if you do the math, he's worn the colors of nine pro teams since becoming the third-round draft pick of the Arizona Cardinals in 2002. In all, Josh has started 76 NFL games for six different franchises, passing for 17,700 yards and 98 TDs. Now, well, now he's here to discuss the long and winding road that is one of the NFL's most interesting careers. And Josh, I want to thank you for joining us. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. Hey, Josh, you played four seasons with Arizona, three with Chicago, two apiece with Carolina, Cleveland, and the Jets, and single seasons with Detroit, Oakland, and Tampa. How difficult was it learning new playbooks and working with new offensive coordinators and new receivers seemingly every other year in your career? Wow. Um, uh, well, when you put it like that, that's not that hard, I guess. No, <laughs> you rattled them off. That's, that was the most impressive anybody's ever, ever rattled that off. Um, you know, I, I think uh, the main thing is just figuring out your learning style when you're going from one offense to the next and, and trying to adapt. Uh, you'll get to know people kind of um, – Understanding the teammates, I think those are those are things that probably came more easy to me, just relating to guys or whatever. But the harder part for me was just actually the actual downloading of information and, and learning the new terminology. And uh, and you know I, I would tell rookies all the time, you know, you got to figure out how you learn and what's best for you. And some guys, it's you know they want to convert everything. Well, we called this, you know, this formation double right last year. We call it. Ace is right this year, and, and so every time I hear it, I'm just going to convert it, and some, so that works for some people. For me, it didn't, because then it always confused me on what, what team I was on. <laughs> so, um, so I had to learn very quickly how to wipe what, what was the, the previous season and uh, wipe, that, wipe that information out and really study, study hard, hard, hard to get, to get it uh, down to where I felt good about uh, the, new, the new info, the new, the new playbook, and, and then to a point where I could execute it and play well. You know, one of the things I, I, I'm wondering, Josh, is obviously, you know, no kid grows up, uh, a lot of kids grow up dreaming of being in a, uh, a quarterback and being in the NFL. Uh, probably nobody grows up dreaming that uh, I'm going to play for uh, eight teams in 16 years. Did it take away from any of the joy, the, you know, the fun, the sort of dream part that you had when you were a kid uh, that your career was the type of career that it, that it became? Well, certainly um, you, you said it. And Rick's known me for a long time. I mean, we never any of the interviews I did with Rick when I was back in college and coming out. I never said, "Hey, man, I hope I hope I get to you know go between eight to ten teams." And <laughs> and you know I, we never talked about that. That's never you know that's never the first interview you do as a rookie. You, it's always with the mindset of of becoming a franchise quarterback, playing there a long time. That's everybody's goal. And uh, but sometimes there's a different plan for you and a different path. And and mine was different. And and uh, and so I tried to embrace that. Now, the reality of that, that that's not easy, you know, and, and there, that does come with a lot of heartache. You, you mentioned it. There's a, there's a year in, in the United Football League uh, trying to, you know, 
scratch and call my way back into the NFL. And so, um, so those are some hard moments for sure. But I do think this, the love of the game, uh, carries you, you know, and, and so for me, whether it was coaching high school football, I was out of the league or, or, you know, a different, putting on a different helmet, you know, another year, uh, in a row, it was just, for me, it was just the love of the game. Like, and I love, and I think, that part never, as much as it becomes a business, especially when you're getting told no sometimes or traded or released or whatever, as much as the business definitely hits you in the face, uh, I, I had a coach tell me one time, never let familiarity rob you of your joy. And uh, and I thought, you know, I tried to approach it that way of just going, you know what, every day, I don't want this to just be, you know, kind of old hat, My this is my job, I want to enjoy this. And, and I tried to approach it that way as best I could. And I would like to think that, you know, looking looking at the you know the sum of my career, that I have more days where I approach it like that than I didn't, and uh, and I think you know for me that's what kept me going. Well, Josh, since you mentioned hard moments, uh, I'm just wondering. Uh, I looked at something Rick passed me here. He, he said you entered a season as your team's starting quarterback in only three of those 16 seasons: Arizona in 2004, Oakland 2007, and of course the Jets in 2017. I'm wondering, um, and how many of those 16 seasons? Did you feel that you were given a fair shot at winning the starting job? Well, I felt like it was fair. I think, and I don't fault him for this. I think we might be missing a few because I entered Tampa and and uh, and Cleveland those seasons as a starter too. Because I, I think I was. I've, Getting pretty close to, uh, to getting up against the record for most opening day starts with different teams, but uh, but I, I really feel like it was always fair because you know what uh, the field is fifty three and a half wide and, and it's a hundred long and and everybody gets the same opportunity. You go out there and you play, and your play dictates you know where where things work out. Uh, as you know, as Tony Romo, Romo so famously put it, you know, football is a meritocracy, and he was right. And uh, you got to go out and do it and. So, uh, so I, I do. I felt like, you know, in those situations, you go in, you compete, uh, and you, you put your best foot forward, and um, and then you live with the results. And and so I, I felt like every situation, every time I competed, um, you know, that it was it was a fair situation. We we went about it the best we could, or, or at least I approached it that way. And 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 the chips fell where they may. And and uh, and you know, I, I look back with no regrets. You know, Josh, it's an interesting list of quarterbacks you've backed up in your career. Kurt Warner, Jake DeLome, Jake Plummer, Jake Cutler all had Pro Bowl stock. You also backed up the likes of Jeff Blake, John Kitna, Derek Anderson. More recently, you backed up Heisman Trophy winners Robert Griffin III and Johnny Manziel, and last season, Sam Darnold. Two-part question. Who taught you the most about playing a position, and who was the most fun to play with? Wow, uh, that's a great question. Uh it's it's hard, I think, to to not say that I didn't glean a ton from Kurt Warner. He's a Hall of Fame player, and and so I, I look back at really kind of those guys. You said, you know, my time with Kurt, and, I, and then I went from there to Detroit with John Kitna, and learned a ton about leading a locker room and being around, a, you know, uh, leading the guys and and, and just 
connecting with guys with 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 John and just watching him influence our locker room and lead our locker room and and uh, and so that was great and then I and I took a lot away from Jake Delome in, in the same regard of just how he connected with the with his teammates and uh, and so you know I think it's a combination of those guys as far as uh, just from from quarterbacks you know and and uh, most fun you know I yeah, I had a lot of fun with Kit we'd play cards John Kidna we play cards a lot um, and in this past season really with Sam Donald I mean uh, just. Just the age gap alone provided um, comedic relief, you know, every day. I mean, uh, because, you know, there's so many things that would come up that, uh, you know, he's he's barely a year older than my oldest uh, child. And and, uh, and so for, for me, it was always, you know, having to put myself in, in his shoes and, and kind of in her mode of thinking how my daughter thinks. And, and, uh, and so that was a blast. I, I really had a lot of fun being around Sam and, and, you know, enjoyed his friendship and enjoyed, you know, working with him uh, as he learned the pro game. Now, there was a great picture a few years back uh, from a game day uh, tailgate. It showed your uh, your family was out there wearing the jerseys of all the different <laughs> teams you played for. It was pretty cool, actually. And, you know, you wore number 12 with, uh, let's see, six teams. And you wore 13 with Cleveland and 15 with the Jets. Uh for starters, you know, it's pretty clear 12 was kind of your number of choice. Why was that? And and in addition, uh, why'd you choose 13 with the Browns? Okay, great question. Um, 12, because, you know, being from East Texas and Texas boys and, and, and you know, it's hard, to, it's hard to play that position and not look up in that state to Roger Staubach, you know, and, and my older brother, uh set the tone uh, for us uh, back home. Um, you know, he's the first one to, to play college football in our family and, and, uh, and play quarterback. And, and he, he wore 12 all the way through high school because we were Cowboys fans, Roger Staubach. And then he got down to A&M, and because of the 12th man, couldn't, and he wore 15. So that answers those two things. That's, what it, that's why I eventually ended up wearing 15 last year. But, uh, but why I wore 12 my whole career was – was a you know just a nod to, to Roger Staubach and and just how you know how he influenced you know just how he played a position when he played for the Cowboys and just how he carried himself you know as a man and then um, thirteen I, I don't know necessarily how we settled on thirteen other than uh, at the time they were still parsing through Josh Gordon's suspension and so he had twelve and uh, and I just wanted a double digit and I, I think I just picked the closest somebody else had fifteen so I just picked the closest one to him and and. Uh, I don't know if that was my 13th season or not. Um, uh, I don't think so, maybe. But um, but it, it was, you know, at any rate, I think that's just that's it was just like the closest thing to 12. So we picked 13, and I kind of I kind of liked it. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Roger Staubach because, as I said earlier, you threw 98 touchdown passes in your career, but you only had one four touchdown game. Now, given your history growing up as a Staubach and Cowboys fan. How satisfying was it that that one four TD game came against? Yes, sir, the Cowboys on Monday night <laughs> in 2013. Well, it, 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 when you only have one, it has to be satisfying. <laughs> so, <laughs> for me, it was absolutely satisfying, and it was more than anything the coldest game I'd ever been a part of. Uh, 
and you know they came up to Soldier Field that night, and and we just had their number, and it was a blast. I had a lot of fun. Uh, got to run for one that game as well, and and so, um, so yeah, all, all things considered, especially being my childhood team. I mean, the first helmet I put on when when Daddy took us out in the yard and, and had us play, you know, football with each other, and we had pads and all that stuff. It was that were that were, those were cowboy helmets, you know, and so. Uh, so yeah, that, it was special. It was special for me, and and uh, you know, had I had more four touchdown pass games, it would still probably be the most special one. But given the fact that it's the only one, um, it's certainly satisfying. Josh, in 2010, we said you signed with the UFL Col- Colonials in August. Later that same month, the Bears offered you a contract, but you turned Chicago down to honor your commitment to Hartford. How difficult the decision was that? Oh man, it was. It was tough. I mean, I think for me, um, it was just where I was as a, as a man, and just I, I I felt like that was that was the thing I needed to do, the thing I was supposed to do, and and uh, there was a lot of moments. I think the bus broke down and going to first, to our first practice, and there was a lot of moments I was like, I don't know if this was the right thing, <laughs> you know. Uh, but I think when you press up against that adversity in, the, in that time, uh, again, the, the, it really recentered me as a person of faith at my, for my love for the game, you know, that, that I was talking about. I think that's when it really, it, it kind of put all those things through the fire and really revealed how much I really loved it. And uh, and so I'm thankful for that time. Uh, and, and like I said, the story ended great, but in the moment it, it, it didn't feel good. And um, and there were certainly some time, you know, some thoughts of regret. But but being in that locker room with those guys, when you're in that situation with those kind of leagues, I mean, these, you know, everybody's like like everybody's in it together. You're you're all trying to you know playing with the intention of getting back to the NFL. And and so it's a bunch of guys that love football. And uh, and so for me that was that was special. And just thankful that it ended up working out. That when I did get back in the league, it was with the Bears. So uh, so I, I think that's always a cool part of that story. And and um, you know, very, very thankful, you know, to Lovey Smith for giving me the opportunity later on. Hey, Josh, unfortunately we're out of time, but thanks so much for stopping by, and thanks for the time. Very much enjoyed it. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks, thanks Josh. Thank you. That was quarterback Josh McCown. Up next, the two-minute drill. You listen to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're just about at the finish line, so Robert, take us home. That's the two-minute warning. Yes, sir, that's the signal to Ron to the two-minute drill, so Gooseman, let her rip. Would you rather see the Packers play the Raiders in a preseason game in Winnipeg or the Packers play the Blue Bombers? I'd rather see the Jets play the Sharks on Broadway. <laughs> I would love to see an NFL-CFL showdown. Hall of Fame coach Tony Dungy says an 18-game season would be a mistake. What possible bargaining chip would the players accept for an 18-game season? Uh, a 120-man roster. <laughs> Two things. Cash or making wacky tobacco a medicinal product. <laughs> Will Tyreek Hill be in uniform for the Kansas City Chiefs on opening day? My goose, this is the NFL. By then, he may be part owner. <laughs> he will believe he can get uh, Bob Kraft to appear as a character witness. Now that he has a surgically repaired shoulder, Cam Newton has a new throwing motion. At 30 years of age, should defenses now fear his arm more than his legs? Not unless Frank Tanan has been working with him. I think the bigger question is, does he now have to fear his arm more than his legs? (laughs) 
The Honey Badger says the Kansas City defense needs more swagger. So what does Coach Andy Reid need to see more of? Swagger or third down stops? Boy Scouts. Actually, you need to see more defenders who can line up onside. <laughs> exactly. Hall of Famer Richard Dent says he sees some similarities between his 85 Bears and the 2019 edition. What similarities do you see? Well, um, they both play in Soldier Field. They wear the same colors, and they dress in the same locker room, and that's it. Speaking of the Bears, are you on board with their 100th anniversary uniforms that feature more stripes than the American flag? Absolutely. Now that they have stripes, they should hire Bill Murray as their head coach. Somewhere the Broncos of the early 60s are spitting in their collective graves. Burn those socks. DeAndre Hopkins, Wes Hopkins, or Anthony Hopkins? Hopkins Center, Dartmouth College. Lightning Hopkins, one of the greatest country blues guitars ever. What will we do for the next month without any football? Listen to Talk of Fame Network reruns. <laughs> While sharpening my skates. <laughs> That's the end of the game. <laughs> if you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website. That'd be talkoffamenetwork.com. Or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. Thanks for listening.